Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that usually looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. However, this week, we're going to look back on the year as a whole. We're calling this, I think we're going to call it like an a la carte episode. We're just going to pick a couple movies to talk about, movies that we haven't talked about otherwise, and sort of share what we thought and, and recommend them. How you doing, Tay? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you doing this holiday season? Uh, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I uh, you know I I tested positive, uh, so it's a bit of an isolated uh, Christmas season. But uh, you know, thanks to Zoom and Nintendo Online and things like that, I'm I'm, I'm keeping social. Yeah, we are recording remotely today, so uh, mm-hmm. I I can't wait to get back in the studio with you. But I hope you're doing okay over there. Yeah, no, I'm doing fine. Luckily, this, uh, as as I'm sure everyone has been overloaded in the news about Omicron, uh, one of the few silver linings is the symptoms aren't too horrible. So hopefully I won't be coughing into the mic too much. Try to keep it under control. I got some hot tea here. Yeah, we got a lot of movies to get back to in the new year. Yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, yeah, and in, in light of that, I did just want to sort of take 30 seconds because, again, just like our bite-sized Dune episode, this is going to be extra short uh, in theory uh, on paper. Uh, but I did just want to sort of look back and, and, and recognize that this is our 17th episode. We put out 16 episodes since, I want to say, mid-June. I think mid-June was the launch. Right on. Yeah, and it's uh, it's nice to have made it this far. And it's nice to, we've got plans going forward, too. We've got ideas about what the next couple months themes are going to be. We're trying to figure out what the audience votes are going to be. We're starting to consider who we could get to to be a guest on here that isn't related to me by blood or you know, sharing a love of Godzilla. <laughs> um, but uh, I think it's going to be exciting 2022. And uh, just off the top, a big thanks to everyone who's been listening every week, who's got us set to auto download, who uh, participates in those weekly roundups, uh, people who are giving us reviews on iTunes. It, uh, it's, it's, you, you are the ones who are helping us keep some momentum and uh, making it even more uh, rewarding to come back to this every two weeks. Yeah, this has been such a fun, you know, six months already, and I can't wait to keep moving forward with our plans. Like Tim said, we have a lot of good ideas, I think. If you like what we've been putting out so far, then I really hope that you're going to keep tuning in, because I think you're going to really like what we have coming up. Absolutely. But uh, before we head into 2022, we wanted to take a look back at 2021. We had thrown around for a while ideas of how to do a top movies of the year or our favorite movies of the year without, of course, doing a three-hour diatribe where we each have 10 movies and we each talk about them. We, we try to keep the SSC spirit of, of having some focus, um, uh, keeping things brief where possible. Uh, so what we came up with was we've each picked three movies that aren't necessarily our number one, two, and three, and they're not necessarily the best movies of the year. They're just movies we wanted to talk about um, a big disclaimer right off the top, like if we were going to talk about top movies of the year, Dune and Green Knight would almost certainly factor into my top three or top five. Same with the me. Same for you, Taylor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the big reason why we didn't want to just come at this and say these are our three favorite movies each of the year is because not only would Tim and I maybe overlap on that, also we haven't seen the full slate of 2021 movies yet, and I feel like it's kind of an injustice knowing that some filmmakers that both Tim and I really love have movies that we haven't seen yet come out. Licorice Pizza by Paul Thomas Anderson kind of being the paramount example. Yeah, like we 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 already know that like Dune and Green Knight would be in that top 3 or top 5 and we can only assume based off of 
sort of our preferences and our viewing history that licorice pizza would probably be in that top three or top five. Yeah, um, and, but and so this episode is not to say that these are the best movies of the year or even like our favorites of the year. Just uh, that this is these are some of the more interesting picks from what we've seen so far in 2021, mm-hmm. and we uh, would love to recommend these to you guys. Yeah, absolutely. At and least yeah, I think we're the... recommending all of these. I don't know. I haven't heard your full breakdown of your list yet, so... I'm I'm recommending all of mine. I actually, you know, based on your list, I have I have maybe some contrary thoughts to some of yours, which which will be interesting. We'll see. Um, yeah. But yeah, our disclosures off the top, as we mentioned, we haven't seen Licorice Pizza. I've heard really good things about Drive My Car. And Summer uh, of Soul. We, yeah. Uh, Worst Person in the World, Red Rocket, Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, Petite, uh, Petite Maman. Yes. Um, there, there's a handful of stuff out there that some of the critics that I like to follow are raving about and... When you don't live in New York or L.A. or even in Toronto, uh, it's just it's hard to see movies in that limited release cycle when people start talking about them. Um, Luckily, our local film house is going to get a couple of these movies in the next month. Uh, Licorice Pizza is out soon. Yeah, Licorice Pizza is literally playing at the theater like five minutes away from me right now. And the theater is closed. Yeah. So So I can't. It's like just out of my reach. And I would have loved to see it before today. Yeah, yeah. Some of these you you just won't be able to get your hands on until like around Oscar season proper when they get a wide release. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is what it is. So these take it with a grain or a pound of salt, however you feel, just three movies that we really enjoyed or we thought were interesting or marked an important part of this year. And I think there's probably no better way to kick that off than with one of my picks, um, which is also arguably a bit of a cheat. Uh, whether or not you want to call it a movie, uh, IMDb classifies it as a TV special. It did play in some theaters, uh, one night only select viewing. I want to talk about Inside, uh, Bo Burnham's Netflix comedy special, TV special, short film, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm going to call it a movie, and I do think it's worth talking about because um, I, I haven't seen all of what you would classify as pandemic art. Um but this uh, is the be- is the probably the most critical one that I've seen so far. Uh, Tay, you had mentioned there's one is by Ben Wheatley. Um, yeah, there's one called Into the Earth that I really really loved, and unfortunately it didn't fit in my three for today. But it would it was very close to my list of talking of films worth talking about. Um, if it would be my pick for best pandemic film for what it's worth, but I want to hear what you have to say about Inside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think part of the way to look at this, I my disclaimer off the top is. I would say if you haven't really been hooked into Bo Burnham's comedy before, I don't blame you at all. I think actually musical comedy is one of the least accessible forms. Uh, It's a very specific vibe. And if it doesn't really uh, mesh with your sensibilities, then I think it can be really off-putting and kind of awkward. Um, So I don't blame people at all. And I, I was kind of in the, in the gray on a lot of his earlier stuff. And then of course he put out eighth grade, um, which was just a, bombastic directorial debut such a good movie um a couple years ago and then when he put this out um i do think that while there are obviously there are some very clear comedic songs with obvious hooks um so different sketches not all of it is comedy a lot of it is reckoning with the reality of living in a pandemic uh living alone in a pandemic uh things like that so i do think don't go into it entirely expecting a comedy um, I think there's there's a lot more to be gained from it. And then just in terms as a work of something, as, as something that was created during the pandemic, I think it's a great reflection of that. Because I know there are different like um, 
there's there there's that Anne Hathaway and uh Chwidal Ejio for movie that was made during the pandemic where it's basically just them and they're talking over Zoom. They're staged with uh, Michael Sheen and David Tennant. There's all these different things that you could classify as pandemic art, I think, where they rely on Zoom or they rely on a small cast in a remote location where they can they can contact Trace. Um, or you just notice that like there's way fewer extras in the background or everyone is shot really wide and spaced out and you can tell it was created under certain restrictions. This is the most interesting by far, because again, it's one guy creating an entire thing. And one of the more interesting parts of how that shows is that in between the songs or the sketches in this special, you get this footage of him setting up shots. So he's playing around with different lighting setups. He's measuring his distance to the camera, or he's checking his framing on a, on a remote monitor that he has. It shows you all the work that would go into not having a camera crew or even just a, a camera person, like a housemate who could have helped him with this kind of stuff. And furthermore, like in a single like white room space, all the lengths that he goes to to make it interesting and different from the last song. Everything has a different feel because it has strobe lights or it has a disco ball or it has um, like a slow digital zoom done in post on the camera shot. I think there's a lot of very interesting things here that show you it was all created by one person. And that's why I think it really digs into that spirit um, of, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and it, it hit really close to home for me because when it came out, I was living alone in a basement apartment. I was roughly the same age <laughs> yeah. as Burnham. And one of his songs in it is about turning 30. Um, so definitely like I, I was a, a key target in it, but uh, it played really well for me. Yeah, you know, I got to say I haven't seen inside yet so i can't really have too hard uh too strong of a judgment call on it but i've heard some of the music uh through other people which has been fantastic um mm -hmm. i tend to like bo burnham's comedy in smaller doses than a full-length kind of special like this but yeah the fact that you've mentioned you know he has all this behind the scenes production uh really kind of entices me to seeing something like this because like you said the f idea of creating a movie that is at least remotely interesting on your own, entirely on your own, is just, like, objectively fascinating. Yeah, yeah, just the challenge of you only have so many shot types. You can't dolly, you can't really pan, um, you can't do any any real camera movements. I think the only real form that you could call is, again, that sort of slow digital zoom that would be just a matter of cropping the shot, right, digitally in, in post-production. Otherwise... It's all a matter of him using different lenses or different angles, getting above himself or below himself, changing the height of the scene, changing the way it's lit, whether or not you're shining a light directly in the camera, where the light's coming from, if the light's moving, all that stuff. It's a really, it's a creative production. I think even if you can't engage with the comedy because it's not your thing, I do find it to be extremely interesting from the perspective of how it was made. All right. Yeah. And then, I mean... Jumping over to the other end of the spectrum from Inside, made by Bo Burnham alone in a room, um, not shown in theaters until it had gotten a bunch of acclaim. We're going to jump over to, to the first movie you're going to talk about, Tay. Yeah, kind of exact opposite end of the spectrum. I'm going to talk yeah. about Kerry Joji Fukunaga's No Time to Die, the latest James Bond picture uh, that came out, I guess, as the it was supposed to come out right before the pandemic or mm -hmm. the summer of the pandemic. And because of lockdowns they decided to delay the release and then when it finally came out you know i think it was in 
this past July or yeah, G- yeah, or around August, there, July maybe. or August. Yeah. yeah, it was kind of like I think when we mentioned it on the Dune podcast that it was just such a good memory of what theatrical experiences should be like. Mm-hmm. When I went and saw No Time to Die, it was my first time back in a theater in you know a year probably or really close to a year because yeah. I saw Tenet at one point during the pandemic too. But yeah. no, seeing No Time to Die, it might have been the fact that I'd been out of a theater for a long time, but what a rush, uh, what an adrenaline rush this movie had. Uh, there are so many things that I would like to say about this movie, but I'm not going to do any spoilers for the sake of people who haven't seen it yet. But just, uh, I think that this is one of the best Bond films. I think, as a, I'm just a massive fan of Skyfall, and without Skyfall being in the oeuvre, I think mm-hmm. No Time to Die would take the cake for me as the best Bond film. I think it kind of has everything you want in a contemporary Bond. There's a lot of things that have been, a lot of layers that have been peeled back from the original, more masochistic James Bond depictions, and I really like what they've done with the latter Daniel Craig films as kind of like this, you know, violent, cold, but also like just traumatized version Mm -hmm. of James Bond. And uh, this movie really... I don't know, highlighted a lot of those things that have they've been doing really well throughout the Daniel Craig saga. They put a really nice bow on it, I think, with this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple shout-outs. Um, the movie stars a couple like fantastic performances from uh, Leah Sadu, Remy Malek, and Anna de Armas, uh, who are kind of mm-hmm. added to the James Bond cast. And everybody who was already you know, in the James Bond crew is very good in this movie as well. Um, I really love the cinematography in this one, even though it wasn't, you know, the Roger Deakin cinematography of Skyfall. The guy who shot this is named uh, Linus Sandgren, who shot uh, like really colorful pictures like La La Land and American Hustle, who I, which both movies which I really think stood out because of their color and cinematography. Yeah, and uh, I think that that fact that element was brought into this movie as well. Like the color really pops, the cinematography is really exciting and exhilarating. He's really good at moving a camera. Sorry, what was that? Yeah, they they and Fukunaga really, really worked well together. I think there's some the the highlights of this movie for me are definitely some of the more the more action focused sequences. It's beautiful throughout. I think it's really well shot, but there are a couple sequences that just glide, and you can kind of see Fukunaga's eye from way back in True Detective still coming yes. through. But then you yeah you've got the cinematographer coming through with this eye for color as well. Some really really beautiful sequences. Yeah, and. If you've seen like I'm thinking like a lot about a lot of the cinematography from La La Land, the way he this guy can move a camera is just so natural and smooth, and I just thought that he was able to carry a lot of that into the action segments of James Bond really, really effectively. Um, I also really liked Remy Malek as the kind of surprisingly sinister villain. Um, I but I also really loved that he was not the only obstacle for Bond in this movie. There's a lot of personal obstacles, uh, which I thought is an element mm-hmm. that Skyfall did really well as well. Um, the, stu- the stunt work is absolutely top-notch. Um, it's really difficult to think of another movie that has such a ludicrous amount of car stunts like throughout the movie, not just like in yeah. sections. It's like through the whole movie, there's like just amazing stunt work. Um, and I just thought that the dir- Fukunaga's direction is unprecedented in the Bond verse so far. I thought like his just idea of what to do with Bond was perfect. So that's all I'm going to say about this one. But uh, as kind of like the big theatrical release of the pandemic or one of the few, uh, I highly recommend if you can see this on a big screen somehow still, that's the way to see it. But uh, I think it will hold up on a smaller screen as well.
Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It was a just a phenomenal big screen experience. It really it made use of the full frame. Yes. Great sound, really bombastic, very exciting and uh and and uh like frenetic. I, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. the, some of those sequences. It was great to see Ana de Armas in there. She's so yeah. much fun. Yeah. She's um, gonna be a breakout I, though. She'll yeah. we'll see her a lot yeah. in, down the oh, road. Oh yeah. And I mean on the whole, I didn't this movie didn't stick with me super well in terms of the writing and some of the Bond choices, um, but I know lots of people I talk to, you talk to 10 people, you get 10 different opinions on what Bond is and what it should be. That's right. And I think I think that's what Fukunaga is coming up against. He really made what felt to me like a an oddly direct sequel to Casino Royale. Right. So I think yeah. No Time to Die maybe suffers when taken into account of this really messy um, five movie saga. Well, because two of them messy, are bad, right? right? Two of them are really bad, right? So I don't, I don't necessarily even blame him. But this, uh, there's a, I think there's a little bit of um, have your cake and eat it too in this script, right? That doesn't detract by, from how much fun this movie is. is is a theatrical experience, though. I, um, I, I definitely, again, we took if we took Dune out of the, um, out of the out of the discussion, uh, this was this was the cinematic experience this year. That's right. Yeah, I'd um, I'd still put Dune just over this one, but as far as like mm-hmm. theatrical experiences over the past decade go, I'd say Dune and No Time to Die are right at the top for me, like right in the top five. Yeah. Right on. Well, okay, um, jumping again, going uh, big to small uh, once more. Uh, the movie I want to talk about now is uh, Pig. Uh, it's just called Pig. Uh, it's uh, directed by uh, Michael Sarnowski. It's a directorial debut. Right on. And uh, it stars Nicolas Cage and Alex Wolf, who you might remember from Hereditary. He was also in Old this year, the Shyamalan movie, which uh, is not one of the ones we're going to talk about in this episode. Uh, although Wolf is really good in it. Um, I actually think he's, a, he's one of the more exciting uh, younger actors we have. I'm looking forward to seeing him in lots of stuff. But uh, Pig, I... Pig's a really interesting one uh, because on paper it makes you think it's one thing and it's really not and I don't think like that was the intention at all. What does it make you think it is, Tim? It makes you think it's John Wick. Yeah. Uh, Because if you look on this paper, it's uh, um, Nicolas Cage is a a truffle farmer, a truffle hunter, and he has a truffle pig who helps him find the truffles and then the pig gets taken from him and he has to go through the Portland underground to get it back. And I think you tell anybody that they're like, oh, yeah, like, you know, John Wick and the dog and like, you know, an aging sort of star coming back to an action format. And, you know, they do all this guns training and they learn jujitsu and stuff like that. And I I think if you don't see the trailer, you really expect that. And this movie is very much the opposite of it. It's a quiet, somber exploration of grief. Uh, There is nobody gets like shoulder thrown there are no active reloads. Um, you know, it's there's the it's not John Wick, so don't go into thinking it's that. However, it is maybe my favorite movie of the year. Um, it's uh, it's just it's an extremely, I think, powerful story that doesn't go over the top too much, um, except in a couple cases. Um, I think I think it's talk about a lot, of, a lot of boxes for you though, right? Like the the focus mm-hmm. on the culinary side of things mm-hmm. and then yeah, also so like I'm, the... I'm i'm a bit of a yeah i'd say maybe generous to call me a bit of a food hobbyist i like i like making stuff at home and i like paying attention to that sort of culture and yeah one of the there's a there's a handful of things that this movie sort of 
examines or com- has a commentary on, and one of them is sort of uh, haute cuisine and, you know, high-end gastronomy and how that can often uh, miss the forest for the trees, right, uh, in terms of trying to make a good meal for somebody, something they're going to remember, something that will have an effect on them. Uh, so that's sort of like a B plot line in this is Cage's character returning to the culinary scene that he had left. And and it, that, that uh, part of re- it's the re- most fascinating for me. That's, that's yeah. what I really enjoyed about the film. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he reconnects with these people he hasn't seen in a long time. And he, he reminds people of what was important to them. And there's a lot about it in, uh, there's a lot in it about art and commerce too, about, you know, you start off with artistic dreams and then you end up doing something that's just a better bet financially that it will make you money. Um, but there's a lot, there's some powerful family stuff in there between Alex Wolf's character and his dad. Um, great arc for that character and a, a less, maybe a less steep arc for Cage's character, but, but nonetheless important. I, I think it's just a, it's a nice quiet movie. Um, it's, it's all gray and Brown. It's very, it's dark. Um, on the palette, but but not necessarily in the tone. Yeah, the tone and, is not uh, as I, dismal as you might be making it out to be. Yeah, too. no, it, it's not. Like it is about reconciling with grief, um, yeah. but I wouldn't say it's overly depressing. I do think it is there. There is some form of triumph in this movie, uh, so I I would highly recommend. I think it it is just a phenomenal script, like yeah. an unbeatable script, and and a very impressive directorial debut. Um, yeah. So. I, I thought that this was, I didn't think the direction wasn't as impressive as you think it was, but I did really enjoy this movie. I thought it was going to be something entirely different, and I was really happy it wasn't that. I was really happy that it kind of used your expectations against you, but then I think that there was like a bit of something misconstrued in that process as well, and I think that there was just like too much emphasis on like defying your expectations almost, but at the same time, this was what the movie was always supposed to be. So maybe it was just mismarketing. Almost certainly. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, cage has that a B problem, right? He's either phenomenal or he's like schlocky, right? Like, cause I think maybe a month before this, um, that five nights at Freddy's movie came out where he just like kills a bunch of like, um, animatronic characters in like a Chuck E. Cheese. Yes. Yeah. Right, and I think we try. You're trying to market Cage one movie after another, and you're and at this point, you're <laughs> the marketing team for Pig trying to set themselves apart from whatever that Five Nights movie was called, and and the other, you know, the other ten Cage movies that are going to come out. Some of them direct to streaming, super schlocky. He doesn't say anything. He just he can't be directed. You know, um, I don't I don't envy them. It's tough when you get something like this where Cage really really delivers. Yeah, and, and he he does really deliver yeah. in this movie. He's mm-hmm. he's dialed in, and I thought yeah. this was one of his most nuanced performances actually, because mm-hmm. he's usually pl- he can play characters really well, but this is more this is a more like grounded per- human performance rather than a character. Yeah, yeah, it it really is. He's not. It's not like locking into here's the hook of my character. He has this yeah. thing or he is this thing or he or he's just, you know, uh, unpredictable, which is a handful of Cage's characters. <laughs> yep. Um, this one is. Yeah, this one is there. You can feel there's some there's a lot of interiority. There's a history. There's a depth. 
Um, it's it's a great performance. I, I think you're right. The direction is is a little messy. I think it's really strong for a first one, and I think for a first director, they and, and absolutely. I, I'd say one of the key parts is that like if you get a performance like this out of Cage, you must be good with with actors in one way or another. Because I assume he's probably used to being able to walk over um, a first time director. Any actor of his with his kind of legacy can just kind of walk in and say, "Well, this is how I'm going to do it." So. Either Sarnowski lucked out and Cage read the script and knew how he was going to do it right off, or um, and he knew to stay out of the way, which is a skill in and of itself. Yeah, there's uh, there's or, a good relationship between the two for sure, or else the movie wouldn't turn out the way it did. Yeah, but that that's Pig. Uh, no need to say too much more on it. I, I do think you'll really enjoy it. Maybe make yourself a nice meal and open a bottle of wine that's right. and, uh, and, and watch it, because it, it'll make you hungry. I for think. sure, it will make you hungry. Yeah. Uh, what's the next one you want to talk about, Tay? I'm also going to go small scale. This is uh, the smallest one I'm going to talk about today. Um, a little movie called Censor, which I believe was a straight-to-Netflix release earlier this year. Um, this is a... Uh, as far as Hollywood cinema goes, this is a micro-budgeted movie. Uh, from what I can f- find in my research, this is this movie is made for under $2 million. I'm not positive on that number, so don't quote me on it, but very low-budget film out of Wales. The director is named Prano Bailey Bond, and she, this is her directorial debut. Uh, she'd done a couple short films before this, but uh, this was a striking directorial debut. There is, this is someone who really knows how to control visual information to the viewer, and I will definitely seek out whatever she chooses to do next. Um, it's cool seeing a movie from Wales. I always like seeing movies from countries that I'm less familiar with their cinema, um, and this one kind of has this underlying element of uh it's like an underlying disturbing element it kind of haunts you and eats away at you even when the movie's done and i i it's been a while since i've had a movie like this the last one i can think of was called resolution it's from like 2011 or 2013 maybe but this movie it's not i'm not going to go out and say it's a definitively scary film but it's a psychological uh, horror in a, in many ways that kind of builds up in your head and like I said it kind of makes you think a lot afterwards too which is pretty cool I should say I did miss a lot of 2021 horror films but this one really stood out just because of the fresh voice of uh, Prano Bailey Bond uh, I think that her decision making in terms of like I said visual information was fantastic um, the plot is something that I thought would have already been done in cinema before it's basically um about a film censor board and uh, someone who sees graphic information on a day-to-day basis and the impact that it has on their life and then their their reality. And I think that this is something that uh, has been criminally underdeveloped in cinema history. Like, I can't believe there hasn't been more movies about the censors who censor the movies that we're watching. Sounds like it has some shared DNA with Videodrome. Just There's... like a little a little connected thread. I'd be surprised if she hadn't seen Videodrome. <laughs> I, bet, I bet she has. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she also wrote this movie. and uh, She had a writing partner, but for the most part, this was like her baby and her project. And there's a lot of like movie love in this movie. Uh, there's like clear homages to older horror uh, genres that, you know, like the schlockier genres like Hammer Horror or uh, Giallo films. Mm-hmm. Uh, even like there's a lot of, obviously because the film's talking about censorship, there's a lot of really gratuitous imagery and uh, homaging torture porn genre as well. But uh, ultimately, really poignant film. 
about the power of horrific imagery and uh, the potential impacts upon real life situations and real people. And uh, I can't recommend this movie enough if you are into psychological horror or thrillers. Yeah, no, this one, uh, it's been on my list from the year and just kept getting bumped down by other things that took precedence. So I still haven't seen it. I think, you know, we've got this uh, infamous, you know, dead week between Christmas and New Year's, lots of free time. I'm definitely going to check it out because I heard the only real specific things I ever heard about it was just the visual style was phenomenal and that they were getting so much bang for their buck, especially if, if the budget is anywhere near what, what you've yeah. reported it as. Uh, it sounds like they really stretched every dollar and uh, and made something very special. So I'm looking forward to checking this out. Yeah, it's honestly just fresh. You know, it just felt mm-hmm. new. It felt like something I hadn't seen really before in horror. And I watched, I try and cover a lot of horror movies with what I watched. Mm-hmm. But uh, I should also note that the stars of this movie, they are uh, Niam Algar, who I've never seen before, but I think she's a breakout star. Um, and then Michael Smiley is a really awesome performance in this movie as well. Um, I know him from a lot of Ben Wheatley's films. We mentioned him earlier in the podcast, but... Uh, I haven't seen him in too many other filmmakers' work, so seeing Michael Smiley in something else was fantastic. Maybe he's Welsh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like him. Yeah, Shaun he's, of the Dead. He's kind of like, he's got this creepy factor, but he also can be very funny. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah lobster, that's our, Yeah, no, lots of stuff. Yeah, that's my second pick. Censor, uh, check it out. Yeah. And then uh, my, my final pick to talk about today, um, which you might have seen, it's it's available on Netflix, but I was lucky enough to catch it in our local film house on its limited run. Uh, it's The Power of the Dog, uh, directed by Jane Campion, a New Zealand director who hadn't done anything in 12 years. So people were pretty excited for her to come back and do this based on a uh, a novel from the 70s. Um, so it stars Bandit Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, uh, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. Uh, are your main four and it is such a dialed in character study it is again I, I i love i love calling movies slow and it being a good thing but that is what i think most of the time uh i think this movie was slow and quiet and pensive and just notched up what you learn about these characters click by click scene by scene sequence by sequence look by look um it's just it's a um it's an examination of masculinity often the more toxic parts of it through the lens of a uh, of a western but it's a western without many of the icons that you would normally associate there's well, no gunfights it's a 1925 um, western yeah yeah it's uh, like so many great westerns uh it's a western about the end of the west and about the end of that style of man so you've got cumberbatch in Probably the best performance I've seen him give, I'd say, personally. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, as this guy who really cannot modernize, while his brother, someone very close to him, very important to him, is modernizing and is not stuck in their past the way that Cumberbatch's character is. And it's that conflict between them that grows as then Plemons takes on a wife and her and her son into the house too and the the friction between the three of them and cumberbatch uh, which develops in ways honestly i i never would have guessed myself and i i don't think are telegraphed but there are earned i think that it's that really nice thing in scripts where you arrive at a point and you're like i wouldn't have never guessed that but looking back i can see i can see exactly how we got there uh i 
I thought it was a very powerful film. It was great to see it on the big screen. They use New Zealand as the setting for the, like they, 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 they filmed in New Zealand, um, but called it, you know, the American West. And it gives it this weird sort of alien there. It's a landscape that doesn't exist anywhere in America. You have these wide plains that immediately go to this, uh, hill mountain landscape immediately behind it. It's a very beautiful movie and it was great to see it on a big screen. I also really love this movie. This is this was probably my top five of the year. Um, I want to contest this whole idea of it being slow because I actually didn't find it very slow. I found it very uh, deliberately paced, and I yeah. thought it was it showed you so much visual information that I never found it that slow. Actually, it, I, there was okay. just always like something visually very informative on screen, which is like not something I associate with slow films, but I guess maybe mm-hmm. if you're used to like going to the theaters and you're, you know, you're run of the mill Marvel movies, this might come across like, okay, when's the next action moment going to happen? Yeah, but also like, there, maybe, there's like a constant tension that I think that kind of erases that sense of slowness for me. Mm-hmm. Cause there's tension between the characters almost from the very beginning, from the, almost the very first mm-hmm. scene. I was like, what's going on between the two brothers? What's going to happen now that Jazzy Plemons, one of the brothers is making these decisions. I like was constantly on the edge of my seat and I think almost all of it came back to Benedict Cumberbatch's performance as like this nasty human being. Yeah. Really commanding presence. The sound design in this movie was incredible. Really good. There's a lot of like, you can hear Cumberbatch's character stomping around this house and like his spurs and the whistle, right. And the whistle and, and his banjo and stuff. Yeah. Like the, the production is, is 10 out of 10 easily when it really, it elevates the rest of it. Probably I think worth- you're right about the way that I use the word slow. I I never mean it as a bad thing. I, I know you're, you don't. You're, yeah, I think I think you're right that maybe I'm I'm saying it in terms of you don't have a set piece at the end of the first act and the second act and then a big set piece at the end. Correct. Right? Like the set pieces, if they're there, they're emotional or they're about something that changes between two of the characters. Slow, yeah. I, I maybe need to reevaluate how I use that term because you're right. Like I think this... This this movie is phenomenally paced and it keeps the tension up. It keeps that momentum going. And actually, um, you're but you're right though. It totally it cuts out those pit, look the climactic scenes of each act. It mm-hmm. does it almost well, intentionally also, it, with the it, chapter break. Was it five chapters? Or? I think it's five chapters. Yeah, with with title cards. So the yeah. the other thing is whether whether or not you want to break this into a three act structure is maybe a bit of an argument. But regardless, it's on Netflix. You almost certainly have it at your fingertips right now. Um, I, I would highly recommend it. It will be talked about uh, in the Oscars if that's something you follow. So definitely something to check out. I think it's a great script. Cumberbatch will get a nomination. Yeah, um, he will. But I also think uh, uh, Dunst should too. I, I I I assume the kid will probably get one too. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that personally. I think he had an extremely well written part, and I think he delivered. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily an exceptional thing. I've honestly never enjoyed Cody Cody Smith McPhee in very many things, mm-hmm. but like in the like the three movies I've seen him in now, but yeah. he was you know I I agree his character was re- really well written and the script was just fantastic. I think kind of seamlessly anyone could have fit into that spot, yeah. but I'm not gonna judge too critically. I I really love this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my that was my third one. And uh, to uh, wrap it up, what are we what are we talking about now, Tay? Uh, well, I'm going to keep this one nice and brief because I think a lot of people will want to avoid spoilers for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, my last movie is kind of like a, a fairly large theatrical release, uh, Nightmare Alley, which is Guillermo del Toro's latest film. 
Um, I know Tim has some divisive thoughts on Tim and I have some divisive thoughts on this one, but um, I really enjoyed this movie. I am a I'm a massive Guillermo del Toro fan, and I know a lot of people kind of are on the fence with his style, uh, or at least like think half of his movies are good, half of them are bad, kind of thing. I've just kind of always been able to dial into his work as someone who's just I c- you can see the love of filmmaking exuded from every frame he's involved with it. And he's so passionate. Yeah, his level of passion and his collaboration with so many talented people is are the things that I really look for in his films. Uh, so I, I, and I'm saying all this knowing that Tim is going to probably disagree with most of this, but I thought this was a like an actual grand scale film noir, which doesn't really happen very often. It's it's kind of a rare genre to take in such epic proportions, and the fact that this is a very clear like three big act structure uh is kind of cool to me because you don't really get like the big the the grand scale nature of this in film noir um and this is clearly like del toro like reliving like his love of 40s and 50s crime also his love of the carnivalesque which is something that i've actually like you know i i spent a year of my life working with a circus group actually so uh there's a lot of cool like tie-ins that i kind of recognized through a lot of like my former research Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the stuff to do with uh, geeking and uh, freak shows and uh, basically just the, the carnivalesque as a whole is are all things that I'm very fascinated in and also what Guillermo del Toro is fascinated in clearly because the production design is off the charts he is just giving it he's giving this era its full service in all mm-hmm. regards and uh he didn't focus as much on like the darkness of that world as much as I th- thought he was going to, but mm-hmm. uh, he, yeah, because the main character played by Bradley Cooper kind of escapes this world before it even get it gets too rough, which I was kind of almost disappointed by, but I did like the ending. Yeah, no, I uh, I caught this one. I'm also I'm a huge Guillermo del Toro fan. I think yeah, you know some of the movies that people don't like as much. I think I I still have a way into them. There are things I still look for in them when I go back to them. Th- things like, you know, Crimson Peak, some so, some of the stuff that flopped a bit more. Um, so I was really excited to see this and it didn't really work for me um, for a number of reasons, which again, I don't think I need to get into. Um, but I would say if you're, if you liked Pan's Labyrinth, if you like uh, Hellboy, if you like GDT, you you should go see it. It, des- it deserves to be seen regardless of, of what I think of the movie. And this isn't really the time to get into a ton of the critiques, but I, I think you're right. Like um, the, the production design is it, it's fulsome. It's, it's to his standard. It, it looks fantastic and everything everyone's wearing and what they're holding. Yeah, I love the costumes. Stuff. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a great full cast. I don't think they always fire on all cylinders throughout this. Um, yeah. And, yeah there, did you have any, any of, notes? Like you What's said, that? you mentioned that to me before we started recording. Like, which performances I, I think, were you I think not? Your great lead, with? I think your leads are sleepwalking. I think Cooper and 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 Cape Blanchett, in particular, fail to find something that I can actually hook onto, or at least that's how it played for me. I don't, I don't know, and that and that's why, like, again, given how much I like Del Toro, I'm gonna watch this movie again because I do feel like I may have missed out on something. But okay. it did not like this. This movie did not hook me. I I just I was watching a GDT production and being like, oh, I love how that looks. I love how that sounded. I liked I liked how he did that. But 
Um, there was nobody I cared about and there was no stakes to me in this movie. And it's, it was so abject to me that I do feel like I did something wrong. Like I, I missed something because if this was another filmmaker, I'd be like, yeah, it's not a good movie. I don't, I don't need to see that again, but it's Guillermo del Toro. So I do have a bit of a like audience member guilt where I'm like, why didn't that work? What did I miss? And it could be that it, it wasn't for me. And it could be that maybe it's actually truly not a good movie. Honestly, um, I, I usually we usually <laughs> agree on these kinds of things. So yeah. I, I was really intrigued when you said you weren't as big a fan. That um, was, I mean, while I was watching the movie and I had like I knew I had talked to you about it a couple of days before where you gave me a very spoiler free like you really liked it. You thought it was his best looking movie. And I'm watching. I'm like, yeah, it looks good. I don't care anything about what's happening on screen. So, so it was a very it was an odd experience for me. Um, but I am glad that you mentioned it because I do think people should go see it. You got to. Go buy a ticket uh, if it's safe to do so, if your theaters are open, if it's still running when they reopen. If you're a GDT fan, uh, go support them and support Toronto filmmaking because yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, the whole thing shot in Toronto, which is awesome. At least most I, of it I don't is. Know, I don't know if you recognize where there's a character in the third act, very rich man, and he lives in this massive yep. building. You yep. recognize it from mm-hmm. uh, In the Mouth of Madness. It's this water oh, treatment plant yeah. in Toronto. Oh, well, that's it's, also, it's in a ton of movies. It's used in, yeah, it's used in dozens of movies, but it's uh, it's the insane asylum in um, in the Mouth of Madness, if anyone listened to that episode and, and watched that movie. And in Strange uh, Brew. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a wire treatment plant. It's used in so many things. I did think it was funny them being like, it's this rich guy's house. And it's like, that doesn't look like a house. It, but That it, honestly kind of bothered me, but I felt... I felt that that was just kind of because I know that location. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. It, 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 yeah, it may be some inside knowledge at this point, but um, definitely go see it. I'd yeah. love to hear if you had a similar experience to me or a similar experience to Tay. Let us know in the weekly roundup. Yeah, for, for what it's worth, I just want to say about the the acting. Um, I am usually not as big a fan of Bradley Cooper, and I thought he was very nuanced in this movie, which is not something I would normally think of him as an actor. I don't think his perf- I don't think the performances were perfect but i really liked uh tony collette i really liked ron perlman and i really liked bradley cooper more than normal <laughs> which he did he did less which is the right move for him right well, and he, he just got like those like, those like fantastic glassy eyes that are just kind of like almost like full of enthusiasm which i think mm-hmm. really worked for the role i think that's yeah. just the way he kind of his charisma kind of worked in the mo- mm-hmm. in like his natural sense of charisma worked yeah. for the character and I, and I totally agree about Colette. She's never given a poor performance. She's, uh, she's one of the finest actors. Honestly, ever. like everything yeah. she does is so amazing. I, I would love to see her do just more. Like just keep pumping the work, Tony. Mm-hmm. But those are our, uh, our six picks for the year. Um, I hope you go check them out. At least half of them are on Netflix. Um, most of them are on streaming. Nightmare Alley. Go out and support it. Support GDT uh, while you can. Get it some box office. Don't give it all to Spider-Man. Um, we'll link and, every uh, all the movies in our show notes to where you can find them. Yeah, we'll link to where you can find them. Make it nice and easy to watch, um, and uh, and catch up on on them before Oscar season and as we uh, get into twenty twenty two. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, but all, all to, overall, I got to say, twenty twenty one was a good year in movies, all things considered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah no, I think there, there's a lot there's a lot of different stuff given, a lot of very interesting things done. Uh, and uh, uh, more and more ways to uh, to find these movies and to watch them too, just becoming more accessible in a number of different ways. 
Yeah, we're uh, really looking forward to spending 2022 with all you guys who are listening. So uh, mm-hmm. please keep tuning in, and we're going to keep delivering our, our end of the bargain. Absolutely. We uh, we hope you come along for the ride. And uh, just one last plea, uh, wrapping up the year. If you listen to us on iTunes, it, it would mean so much to us if you give us a review. It really helps in sort of getting us out there and uh, putting putting us in front of people who, who are looking for something new to listen to. That's That's what really helps. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah, keep, keep tuning in and, uh, and keep interacting with us on, uh, on Instagram and places like that. Yeah. Happy new year, everybody. Happy new year.